That's a clown question, bro. Hey, what's up on you? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. Welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. Uh, I am your host, Christiana. Over on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing all right, Chris. We've got a lot of news to talk about today. We actually have potentially some baseball happening in 2020. Yeah, this might, this this little history series might get cut short. Which I don't think we should. No, I think it should keep going. But we got some. We got a good episode as far as history today. We have Roberto Clemente, guy with 3,000 hits, one of the most impactful players in the history of sports, not just baseball. We also have the 1993 Toronto Blue Jays. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, yeah. And if you're suggesting we uh, we do we keep doing history, I'm fine with doing like three day, three episodes a week. Yeah, no, I would yeah. be absolutely down for that. Yeah, it would be, especially for the summer. I got, no, I don't have much going on. I can talk about baseball three days a week, no problem. Easily. But yeah, uh, definitely two, you know, two, a, a legendary player, a legendary team we have to talk about but first moments within that team first we just missed you know our week basically goes tuesday to tuesday and on wednesday uh probably the biggest biggest baseball news in the past maybe month came out uh the red sox got Mm -hmm. their uh punishment or lack thereof uh and uh yeah they lose for and that's for uh you know 2018 stuff i'm i'm sure the people already know you know they uh use the video room uh to steal signs illegally during the 2018 season did they use it during the game or like from what i read it sounded like they decoded the signs like before games and then during the games when there was a player on second they would relay the signs of the hitter which, like, yeah. reeling the signs from second is legal. It's the fact that they use technology to decode the signs, which makes it illegal. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild because, uh, you know, with the Astros, uh, the Astros investigation, the report was worse than the initial reports of cheating. This yeah. was the opposite. The the athletic they found nothing that came out. That made the that made the situation look worse, and then when the MLB report came out, it it wasn't as bad as the yeah. actual athletic report. My so, big takeaway from the Red Sox report is that we didn't learn anything that we already knew. Exactly, exactly. Except for maybe the replay guy, but that's about it. Yeah, we found out his name, and uh, he was scapegoated. He, uh, JT Watkins, he uh, got suspended from baseball in 2020. And then he could come back in 2021, but not uh, working uh, in the replay room. And Red Sox also lost a second round pick. And Alex Cora uh, was suspended uh, for the entire 2020 season, but only for what he did with the Astros. So nothing to do with the Red Sox in terms of punishment. Uh, Yeah, pretty, pretty decent stuff for for a Red Sox fan. Kind of a sigh of relief. Um, one thing, I mean, obviously the, the main factor that you think about as a Red Sox fan is that Alex Cora didn't do anything wrong in Boston. According to this report, everything that he's getting suspended for is, uh, retroactive to what he did in Houston. And 
he's essentially done nothing wrong in Boston, meaning uh, at the end of the suspension, realistically, he could come back as the manager of the Red Sox. Like Ron Renneke is the current interim manager, and he was planning about retiring at the end of the year anyway. So why not just give it back to Alex Cora if he hasn't actually done anything wrong in Boston? Yeah, I mean, uh, like the only thing that would that would get annoying is, you know, whatever stigma he had with the Astros. And even, mm-hmm. you know, there was a Wall Street Journal uh, article that came out in what, like February? Like, yeah, it was like late January, early February. Yeah, I found out about it at a, at a men's volleyball game. At so did I. I think I sent it to you, like from the press box. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that kind of might have made uh, Alex Cora innocent there. But I mean, first impressions are, are kind of anything. Once you're thrown into it, people don't forget it. So it'll just kind of be annoying, uh, you know, just being online if the, if the Red Sox hire him back. Well, I mean, Alex Cora hasn't really spoken out and said anything, you know, out there other than just like, I'm sorry, and I accept my, my punishment. Like, I remember Jeff Lunau, when he got fired by the Astros and he got suspended, he put out a statement where he was like, I did not know about this. I'm not a cheater. This has nothing to do with me. Don't associate this with me. And then that Wall Street Journal article comes out that suggested that an intern with the Astros presented the idea of the codebreaker to Jeff Lunau, and he was like monitoring how it was going. So... Obviously, we're getting lied to on one end of the spectrum. It's either Jeff Lunau's lying or the Wall Street Journal is lying about that. It's, and Alex Cora hasn't really put himself in a situation where he's putting words into other people's mouth. He's kind of just doing the bare minimum, apologizing, waiting for what is to go forward, and that's kind of what you're supposed to do in that situation. I think that puts him in the best case scenario to get a job further down the road. Yeah, and uh, I mean, all... All the stigma aside, he's also a great manager. Just to yeah. put like all that into into a perspective for the for the Red Sox, if you if you hire him back in twenty twenty one, you're you're definitely you're better off than uh, than you are, you know, with an, probably another option. Unless like I don't, I don't know who would be better, and they definitely wouldn't be fired by whatever organization is is yeah. there with them. But yeah, uh, you know. As Red Sox fans, we, we kind of had a sigh of relief. But, uh, you know, wasn't the only baseball news out there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Trey Mancini has uh, stage three colon cancer. Yeah. There was a, there was a thing put out, uh, I think it was early spring training. There was a health concern with him. It wasn't specified. So I guess, I guess a lot of people – wondered if it was the coronavirus and honestly he'd probably be better off with the coronavirus he'd probably uh, uh recover from it a lot easier but yeah he get he got um yeah he has stage three colon cancer which is terrible for all, the already ailing orioles i mean trey mancini is such an easy guy to root for you know a guy on a team like that that wants to be there he wants to be a part of that rebuilding process and when they figure it out he wants to be the guy when the orioles are back in a position to compete and it's it's really something to admire out of a player that you don't see that often especially someone entering his prime like Mancini and he's just a really good guy and that's not something you would ever want to see from anybody but especially him yeah it's uh it's really tough you know a really talented guy one of the better right-handed hitters in the league mm-hmm. and uh yeah we definitely we definitely uh wish him a, a speedy recovery but I mean that was that was pretty much all of the uh, the MLB news, if I'm correct. Well, there was a 
Passon put out a report that said like Manfred is confident that there is going to be baseball this year. Yeah. Uh, confident. There was a proposal. I don't know who put this out, but there was some proposal to have three divisions where it's basically the East, Central, and West. No AL, no NL. Nobody plays outside of the division. And I don't know if you saw this, Chris, but if you read deep into uh, Passon's article, there was a um, there was a suggestion that if if there's a second wave of coronavirus and we can't really have a season, he suggested like a big, big playoff with all 30 teams where uh, on, from October 1st to 20th, every team plays a four-game series against each division opponent with a day off in between and the top two teams from each division advancing. So that would be 12 teams. I uh, know, I'm sorry, 10 teams, 10 teams advancing. And then from October 22nd to October 21st, the six American League teams, no, that would be 12 teams, I'm wrong. The six American League teams that advance congregate at one hub. The six National League teams uh, gather at another. They play each other five. Bleh. They play each other. They play each of the other five teams twice in a round robin format with a collective day off in the middle. The four teams with the best record in each league advance. In the meantime, the nine non-advancing teams from each league will meet at a hub and play one game against the rest of the teams there. The winner of that round. Re- of that round robin remains uh, regains entry into the playoffs in the case of a tie hold a winner advances one game play in to the playoffs on november 2nd no we're getting into november now uh the play-in winners faces the number four seed and from the advanced round robin and a one seed wild card one game wild card winner advances to face the number one seed and then we're pretty much just getting into the normal playoffs you get from the November 3rd to the November 9th, the division series. From November 11th to November 19th, the CS championship series. And then the World Series in late November to early December. How about that? It would basically be like pool play into like actual playoffs. Mm-hmm. Imagine Thanksgiving with a side of World Series baseball. Yeah, I mean, the only problem baseball would really run into is uh, is interest. Because Thanksgiving, you think of... Football. football obviously and uh yeah that would be that would be definitely an, an interesting dynamic because I'd, pro- I'd definitely be rather watching baseball but i, I don't think my fa- baseball. yeah i don't think my family would would be interested <laughs> the rest, the rest of my family you gotta do what you gotta do um so that is obviously that's not hopefully that's not the case because that's in the case of a second wave of coronavirus god forbid we don't want that uh, but he's hoping, Manfred is hoping, maybe late May, early June. If we have to go in July, we go into July. But there is optimism that there will be baseball in 2020. Yeah, you know, uh, th- things are getting better. I mean, the only thing that, like, I feel like uh, the Yankees and Mets would have a tough time. I don't know what they would do. I yes. Feel like- yeah, because New York is obviously the epicenter for coronavirus, especially New York City. Actually, Queens in particular is like the worst borough, uh, and that's obviously where the Mets play. So I'd be yeah. really intrigued to see what they plan on doing there. Um, obviously, New York is supposedly past its peak and on the downfall, uh, but we'll have to see if that continues. And obviously, everything's up in the air. We can't confirm anything at this point. It's too early to do so, but... I'm really hoping there's baseball in 2020. Yeah, worst case, you could go to, like, an out-of-state minor league facility. I mean, there's there's not going to be fans. The clubhouses can't be that bad. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it would be it would be funny if they were in like uh, Connecticut or something. Yeah, Hartford, where the yard goats play. But yeah, that would that would kind of throw off minor league baseball. But you know, definitely definitely some hope in the baseball world um, as things are looking better than they were. You know, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So there we go. There is the baseball news of the week. Now it is time for the rest of the episode, which will be dedicated first to Roberto Clemente and second to the 1993 Toronto Blue Jays, with who had one of the greatest team anthems ever. I mean, it's it, once you hear it, it just can't get out of your head for sure. We're gonna say that for the very very end of the episode too. Yeah, yeah, and it's a sponsored anthem, but. A good it's one. It's a sponsored that. anthem, correct? Um, and we do do free ads because you know we don't have actual ads, so whatever, yeah. it's fine. But Roberto Clemente, we'll start off with basically how he was shaped as a human being. Born in 1934 in Carolina, Puerto Rico, he was the youngest of seven children. Yeah. It's a busy life, busy household. So yeah, he uh, lived lived an interesting life growing up. Uh, he would use money from side jobs to buy rubber balls, and he would squeeze those uh, to make his hands stronger, which definitely worked out for him in the end. And uh, he would go to winter league games. Uh, I know there was a story where... Uh, like uh, local Puerto Rican uh, kids would, they would like take players' luggage and uh, they would kind of get them into hotels for free. Yeah. It was, it was like hotels or some, some type of housing complex. Uh, they would get them in for free by just carrying luggage in there. And uh, he actually met one of the people he carried luggage for in the, in the MLB. I think it was, uh, I forget, I forget the name, but yeah, he would go to winter league games, definitely inspired from that. And, uh, in high school, that's where he really got going athletically, uh, played baseball, uh, did the high jump and also did the javelin, which the javelin definitely ultimately, uh, helped him out there. You're going to find great practice. Great practice. Yeah. Great practice. Uh, definitely could. Definitely was very good at throwing things, for sure. And uh, he was also said to have been uh, possibly good enough to compete for Puerto Rico in the Olympics for javelin, not even baseball. I believe it. Yeah, I totally believe it. If you can, if you can throw a baseball 320 feet, I definitely believe you have some javelin skill in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, his baseball skill – Definitely, uh, definitely rose. He took part in a tryout camp uh, where major league scouts were there. Uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers definitely took notice. Their scout, uh, Al Campanas, really took notice. And Clemente also played for a professional Puerto Rican league. Uh, started when he was about 18 years old and played 
played for two years uh, before uh, the MLB between. Uh, so it was, it was basically like a basketball season. It was 1952 into 53 and then 1953 into 54. And he actually played in the Puerto Rican league um, well into his major league career. And then uh, ultimately um, Dodgers vice president, uh, Buzzy Bavasi, which is a very interesting name. Great name. Bavasi uh, gave Al Campanis permission to sign Roberto Clemente. So now Roberto Clemente was uh, affiliated with Major League Baseball. Finally. And you know, when most people think about Roberto Clemente and his Major League career, you think about the Pittsburgh Pirates, and why would you not? That's where he played his whole Major League career. And I bet most people didn't know that he actually initially was signed by the Dodgers. And there's a really interesting story about how he actually got from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh. And Clemente was signed to a $5,000 salary with a $10,000 signing bonus. And back then, the rules were that uh, teams who signed players for more than $4,000 to play in the majors, they had to play for at least two years or they could risk losing them in the Rule 5 draft the next year. And the Dodgers had him in the minors, but they tried to avoid him they tried to hide him from scouts so that um, nobody would draft him when he got in the Rule 5 draft because they really liked him. And, I mean, they would literally pinch hit for him in the, in the first inning anytime they saw a scout there. And lo and behold, the Pirates had the worst record in the league the previous season, and they picked Clemente number one overall in the Rule 5 draft. And the Pirates GM at that time who signed Roberto Clemente, that was Branch Rickey, uh, who is known for signing Jackie Robinson. So... Branch Rickey, a guy who signed Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers, and he signed Roberto Clemente to the Pirates. Obviously, he's a Hall of Famer, and that you see is why. Uh, he also played in the Puerto Rican League with Willie Mays uh, from 1954 to 55. I'm sorry, was it the Miners? Uh, it, was, it was in the Puerto Rican League, yeah. It was in the Puerto Rican League, okay. So he played with Willie Mays there, which, uh, you know, that turned out to be basically the face of 1950s baseball along with Hank Aaron and um, Mickey Mantle and uh, he had to one thing you're going to learn a lot is that playing the majors and being that sort of personality wasn't exactly the easiest thing for Roberto and he had to go through a lot of tough times in his life one of them being he lost his brother Luis uh, Luis to a brain tumor then he got in a car accident that damaged his spinal discs which would affect him his entire career uh, this guy had to go through a lot, losing a family member like that when you're about to embark on this huge journey to the majors uh, can really get to you. And it was kind of held with him his whole career. Yeah, so, yeah, he, he loses his brother and then, you know, he, he gets drafted by the Pirates and Pirates don't want to make the same mistake that the Dodgers did uh, and they get him right into the major leagues. Uh, made his MLB debut on April 17th, 1955, actually against the Brooklyn Dodgers. How perfect. <laughs> how, how fitting. And, uh, I mean, he didn't have the greatest start to his career. He started uh, – he, his first season was his age 20 season, so it was very hard uh, to adjust. And he was actually able to get the start on the team – uh, due to a Pirates outfielder holding out uh, for more money, and then he actually got sick. So he was there the entire year and 
the rest of his career. And uh, although he wasn't, although he wasn't doing great on the offensive side of the ball, fans were really excited uh, by his spectacular defense. Whether it was was his fantastic range uh, or his amazing amazing arm, and uh, he had 18, 18 outfield assists in his rookie year, um, and his uh, his sixteen from right field actually led all right fielders, and that's him as a twenty year old. So he's just getting started uh, in in the outfield. Then the next year, he actually uh, takes a step up. Probably has it's probably his best offensive year of his first uh, five years in the league. He hits 311, which is, which was third in the uh, national league. And, uh, but he, but he only had a, a 761 OPS, which was still above average, but uh, definitely didn't really match the, the 311 in terms of offensive production. And that was in 1956. Uh, took a step down in 1957 with a 637 OPS uh, then in 58, uh, definitely improved, um, not still kind of below average on, uh, the offensive side, but had 22 outfield assists in 1958. Um, but yeah, of course, not great offense. He had a very tough time drawing walks. Uh, and he also had back problems due to that car accident that, that Daniel mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he faced criticism because, you know, people kind of stereotyped him thinking he was lazy because he would also, you know, play through, he would play through the pain sometimes and people thought, oh, you're just, you're just complaining about nothing then if you're able to play through it. It's like, no, he was able to, uh, pull through because he was, he's a trooper. Yeah. He was a very tough guy. Um, and had a lot of character obviously, which is, which is why we're talking about him. And, uh, you know, he definitely faced some, some, uh, you know, sort of discrimination or um, just unfair treatment. Journalists would actually quote him in broken English. They would spell, they would spell words out kind of in uh, how he would accent, which is weird. So instead of Instead of big, it would be big, uh, like B-I-G. It would be B-E, B-E-E-G mm-hmm. uh, instead of B-I-G. More stuff like that, you know, kind of subtle things that probably definitely angered. It can get to you. It was pretty unfair to Clemente. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously he's in a new territory, you know, Puerto Rico, especially back in the early 1960s so much different from the United States. And there's a lot expected of you if you're going to be a major leaguer and, you know, living up to that sort of expectation is hard. And, you know, it starts with the little things like that, like, you know, trying to learn how to speak English and obviously you're not going to be great at it at first. And he was kind of mocked for it almost by the media. Yeah. Which is, you know, definitely bad character from Mm -hmm. the media at the time. I think it's definitely, definitely gotten way better since then. You know, they're def they're definitely more uh in tune with, with what's going on now. Yeah. So in nineteen sixty, uh he actually made both all star games. That's right, there were two all star games for a brief period of time included in that uh time period. Um he finished eighth in the MVP voting in nineteen sixty 
And he was actually sort of upset with this. He thought that he deserved a little bit better, not to win, but better. He had a career high in runs, a career high in hits, walks, home runs, RBI, average OBP, slugging, and OPS. By far the best season he had had in his young career to that point. He led the league in outfield assists as well. And the Pirates ended up going to the World Series that year. And Roberto hit safely in all seven games of that World Series. Uh, of course, they won on Bill Mastrowski's uh, walk-off home run against the Yankees. And Roberto ended up hitting 310 in the World Series. And the Pirates were actually outscored 55-27 to in the series, yet they still won, unbelievably. And a great story about that that I've heard is that Clemente actually, uh, after they won the World Series, went out and partied with the fans in the streets instead of with the team. Like, he felt that he was one of them uh, more so than another Pirates player, which I guess say what you want about that. Maybe it doesn't sound completely ideal, but uh, he, he found a way to enjoy himself when it might not have been easy to, which is obviously really great for him. So moving on to 1961, he wins the batting title hitting 351, his first of plenty. Uh, he had a 949 OPS. He made both All-Stars once again. He won his first gold glove, and he had the most outfield assists in 17 years, 27, and no one has gotten that many since, unbelievably. He finished fourth in the MVP. And he also won batting titles in 1964 and 65. And going forward to 66, he hit 317 with an 896 OPS. He set a career high in home runs with 29, RBIs with 119. Once again, he led MLB in outfield assists. He hit 400 with an 1164 OPS with runners in scoring position, and he won the National League MVP in 1966, finally getting what he deserved. Yeah, he finally gets that MVP. Um, yeah, definitely a, an extremely good year. That was the hitting 400 with, with runners in scoring position. Crazy was absolutely insane to me, especially for a whole year. So then it goes to 1967, where he once again uh, wins the batting title. Surpri surprisingly enough, uh, between, between 64 and 67, there was, uh, there was one year where he didn't win the batting title, and he won MVP that year. Uh, so... That, that was an that was an interesting thing he so yeah he hit 357 in 1967 had a 954 OPS led the MLB in outfield assists again and finished third in the MVP voting then in 1968 uh, he actually led the National League in position player wins above replacement uh, for the only time in his hit in in his career uh, but did not get any uh, MVP votes, which I guess is understandable at the time because his uh, his offensive numbers didn't really jump out. It's just, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess it was the defense that mm -hmm. that put him over there, and uh, also also the, you know, you think you think he gets MVP votes, but also there is no way he was getting that MVP because that was the year uh, Bob Gibson uh, won the National League MVP. Yeah. Get a one point one the best and then in 1969, um, he's still going along. Uh, 1969, that's when he was he was 34 years old, still still doing it. Uh, 1969, he hits 345 with a 955 OPS, 
and then in 1970 hits 352 with a 963 OPS. Almost identical seasons, uh, but very, very high production from Clemente there. And then in 1971, the Pirates have a very good year. Um, fun fact, he was part of the first all-minority lineup uh, on September 1st uh, in that 1971 season. Uh, I found this out from a documentary about Doc Ellis's no-hitter, which is very interesting no-hitter. If you uh, don't know about it, look it up. Um, and he hit and not only did he do that in 1971, not only was he a part of that in 1971, he hit 341, you know, third consecutive year yeah. that he's hit 340 or above, and he had an 871 OPS and finished fifth in the MVP voting. But it's not, it's not what he did in the regular season that was memorable in 1971. It's what he did in the postseason. Uh, in, in the NLCS, he did, he did very well. He, uh, he went six for 18, uh, hitting 333. Also hit the go-ahead single in, uh, in the series-clinching NLCS win, which was, uh, which, is, which was in game one, of, or in game four of that series. Apologies. But in the World Series, that's when, that's when he really he turned it on. things together. Yeah. I have to, before you begin with the World Series, I was watching a documentary about him, and before the 70, 71 World Series, uh, Roberto Clemente was about to be playing in front of the whole world for the first time. Uh, you know, Pittsburgh's obviously not a big baseball market. And back then, when you think of, you know, the great baseball players, you think of Aaron, Mays, and Mantle. Those are like the big three. And Clemente was kind of that fourth guy that was like just the tier below that wasn't getting as much recognition. And there were a lot of people that said like Roberto Clemente was essentially baseball's best kept secret at the time. Like they had the best player in the league that nobody even knew about. And before that series, he gave the media a quote that said something along the lines of, I'm better at anything in baseball than anyone else. He yeah. said this to the media, and I love that he does this right before he goes on the national stage, because what he did after saying that backs up essentially everything that he said in that quote. Yeah, yeah. He, I guess he proved it, uh, at least for that year. For that series, he hit 414, had a 452 on base percentage, a 759 slugging for a 1210 OPS, had two home runs and four RBI. Um, and he really, he really um, showed it in all elements of the game. I mean, in, in game six, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a uh, offensive thing, but he sh he showed off the cannon for the for the world, as you mentioned, for the first time, which is uh, what we're going to show you right here. In the ninth, the Orioles go for the tiebreaker. Buford with Belanger on first and two out, and only a good play by Clemente keeps Belanger from scoring. Crazy throw. Crazy throw. I'm going to rewind to see what that right field marker actually said. Did it say? 309. So that's... The 300-foot throw. That's a 300-foot wow. throw. 
And not a lot of arc to it either. No, that was on a line. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, an absolutely crazy, crazy play. That was in game six. Um, the uh, the Pirates actually didn't win game six despite that throw. And also he had a homer. Um, he had a homer in that game as well. Mm-hmm. But that led to a game seven where uh, Roberto Clemente had – probably the most crucial hit of the series. Um, it's zero, zero, it's zero, zero. Uh, it's, you got Jim Palmer on the mound, if I'm not mistaken, who was, you know, one of the best pitchers in the game at the time. Future hall of famer. Future hall of famer indeed. And, uh, Clemente comes up and he's trying to break the tie. That is hit well. A Clemente home run, and the Pirates lead one to nothing. It looked like he hit a breaking pitch right over the plate. That's his 12th hit. He's one short now, tying Bobby Richardson's all-time World Series record of 13 hits in a seven-game World Series. He had a triple and a homer yesterday and a home run today. Let's watch his swing now. Look at him. Tee off. So, yeah, he breaks the tie. Er, and, yeah, that was not Jim Palmer. I think I'm rem- remembering another game. But he, he still hits the home run, gives them the one nothing lead. They end up winning the game 2-1. Uh, to one, And Clemente uh, ends up winning his second World Series of his career and wins the World Series MVP. So he hit safely in all seven of those games as well. And I don't know if you remember from earlier in the episode, he hit safely in all seven World Series games uh, in the 1960 in the 1960 World Series. That is a 14-game hitting streak in the World Series. Lifetime. A 14-game hit streak in the World Series. You just don't see like that stuff like that from other players. No. So that leads him into his 1972 season. It's his age 37 age 37 season he's not really slowing down has a uh, 312 average and an 835 OPS and then in his last regular season at bat of the season uh, he comes up uh, which was one of this this was his second at bat of the day so they might have taken him out uh, after this but nonetheless it was his last regular season at bat of the season. And he has. Matlack on the 0 1. Bobby hits a drive into the gap in the left center field. There she is. First line, everybody standing. A double for Roberto. Becomes the 11th member of the 3,000 hit club. Uh, We're getting to that season. Yes, and ends ends the 1972 season with exactly 3,000 hits. And uh, yeah, that that closes the book on. What was an incredible 
incredible stretch. That 12-year stretch from 1961 to 1972. He slashed 331, 377, 507 with an 884 OPS. Also between 61 and 72, a gold glove. Every every, single year. Every single year. Didn't miss once. It was just a lock. Did not miss once. He was also third in wins above replacement. That, of course, is behind uh, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, who are – No shame in losing to those guys. Two of the all-time greats, probably top five baseball players of all time. Without a doubt, those two are top five. And um, he was uh, he was second in hits from that stretch, and he was also first in average with a three thirty a three thirty one average over a twelve year stretch. One of the most insane things uh, ever to happen. So, um, unfortunately, after nineteen seventy two, his career did not take the turn that everyone was hoping. Um, on December twenty first, nineteen seventy two, an earthquake hit Nicaragua, uh, another Latin community that was near and dear to Clemente's heart. Not the one he was from, but he was a very popular guy out there. And he promised to uh, provide relief for the uh, earthquake victims and get on a plane and go there to help out the citizens who were in need. So on December 31st, 1972, Roberto Clemente hopped on a plane going to Nicaragua with a lot of emergency medical supplies. And unfortunately, the plane ended up crashing into the ocean and Roberto Clemente tragically passed away at the age of, I believe it was, was he 38, 37? Uh, I believe he was 38. He was 38. Uh, An absolute tragedy, probably one of the most shocking deaths in the sports world at that time. Uh, This was a guy who was incredibly influential to the Latin American baseball community. Um, A lot of people consider him to be the Latin American version of Jackie Robinson. And there is a lot of validation to that statement. I know that that's very strong. You know, Jackie Robinson, he broke the color barrier. And Roberto Clemente, he wasn't the first Latin American baseball player, but he was the superstar that put Latin American baseball on the map. You know, a lot of the Latin guys that we see today, guys like Francisco Lindor, guys like Javier Baez, Yadier Molina, going back to like Pedro Martinez, Vladimir Guerrero, David Ortiz, their roots all kind of start with Roberto Clemente, guy who is an amazing humanitarian, a class act, a genuinely great person. We can talk, Chris and I can talk all day about the great player he was, but he was an even better person. And to lose, to lose him like that is unbelievably tragic, incredibly heartbreaking. He had a son he left his wife behind, um, and, you know, he died in a way that that I guess is somewhat characteristic. He died at trying to help others, of course, not, not exactly how it was meant to happen, but the baseball world missed out on an incredible man who could have done a lot of help, and he, in fact, he planned on building a sports complex in Puerto Rico after retiring. Um, he also uh, would hand out base. He would hold baseball clinics to underprivileged youth, free of charge, and he was known to hand out money to strangers. This was someone who was put on this earth for the purpose of helping other people. And although his life may have been cut short, he he did everything he could while he was alive 
to build that narrative. And he did it out of the goodness of his heart. He didn't do it for attention. He didn't do it to give himself a better image. He did it because he wanted to. And I think the fact that he did this on New Year's Eve, especially, you know, on New Year's Eve, a day where everyone goes out and has a good time, uh, he instead took to the heart of doing what was good in his mind. And tragically, it had to end like that. But nonetheless, incredible person, incredible baseball player, and just a horribly tragic event for not even the baseball world, just the entire world in general. Yeah, and... Uh... You speak about New Year's Eve. There was actually um, someone, I forget the name, but uh, a teammate was helping him out uh, with loading the plane. And uh, the, the teammate suggested getting on the plane, but Clemente was like, no, you should enjoy uh, New Year's Eve. So like, it kind of <laughs> it ultimately showed how what he was as a, as a person where he didn't have his teammate get on the, get on the plane with him he let him enjoy himself um, that night. So it definitely shows that, but, you know, Clemente, obviously one of the human greats also, you know, obviously a, a baseball great as well. Uh, he, he, as I mentioned before, uh, ended his career with the, with exactly 3000 hit 3000, 3000 hits. Um, which is uh, 32nd all time. And of 87 men, there are 87 men um, in MLB history to have 10,000 career plate appearances. And his 317 average is 15th all time. Definitely uh, a top, a top percenter uh, with that. Mm-hmm. And more, his fielding might've been actually more impressive. Getting 3000 hits is incredible. But his 12 gold gloves is sixth all time and first among outfielders, among all outfielders in baseball history. Uh, he, is, he has the most uh, gold gloves. And he also, since 1920, which is the live ball era, has the most outfield assists in MLB, uh, in, in MLB since uh, the live ball era. So, yeah, and he... Also, in 1973, there was a special election for him to get into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Got in uh, with, I guess, 92.7% of the vote, um, which was extremely high at the time. And I don't know, the writers are kind of weird like that, but yeah, yeah. Uh, 92.7% of the vote gets in the next year uh, in 1973. Traditionally, yeah, traditionally... The rule is, and to this day, uh, the rule is that when you retire or when you stop playing, you have to wait five years to get on the ballot. Uh, Roberto Clemente was actually the very first person that they waived that that rule for. Uh, he was he was it immediately after um, his tragic passing, and the MLB has done a lot to commemorate uh, how great he was, both as a player and as a person, uh, since his passing. The Roberto Clemente Award is given out to a player every season who displays excellent work in their respective communities. Um, there are a lot of players, guys like Yadier Molina, I believe has won it. Carlos Beltran has won it. Uh, Carlos Carrasco won it last year. And there are a lot of players that have been very accomplished where the Roberto Clemente award is still their favorite thing that they've won. Yeah, I think uh, I think Kurt Schilling won it. Kurt Schilling won it in 2001. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he says it's one of the most, like, uh, I think in his accomplishments, like, it's that, and I think he won um, some players' award, it, awards that were voted amongst the players. But, yeah, the Clemente Award definitely stuck out for him. Yeah, and uh, the bridge the bridge that you see behind me in my background, that is the bridge adjacent to PNC Park. It was renamed the Roberto Clemente Bridge, uh, of course, to commemorate the great baseball player and the great person that he was. And uh, the Roberto Clemente Museum also opened, opened in Pittsburgh in 2011, uh, which, by the way, the fact that they opened the museum in Pittsburgh, that's not even the main community he was, he was a hero in, which really speaks to how loved this guy was. Like, obviously, he played in Pittsburgh, but his, his fan base was down in Puerto Rico, and the people that enjoyed him the most were down in Puerto Rico. Uh, to have that, you know, strong of a connection both in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and in uh, Puerto Rico and all of Latin America, uh, it really speaks to your character, and that's the one thing he was better at than anybody else. And lastly, uh, MLB celebrates Roberto Clemente Day on September 18th to honor his life both in baseball and in the community. So Roberto Clemente, his legacy is the greatest humanitarian in baseball, a role model for everybody uh, in and around the game and just in and around life. Like Roberto Clemente is someone you should strive to be like, no matter who you are. Yeah, and you know, it's one of those things where you imagine uh, what, you know, if he continued with his life, what he could have accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, you know, through, throughout life. I mean, he was born in, he would be 85, uh, or yeah, 85 today. Yeah. So yeah, he probably would have had a, a whole lexicon of stuff that he did. Um, and, you know, luckily he has that award that, that inspires people to, to do what he would have done. Yeah, he has that. And he also, obviously, he put Latin American baseball on the map. He's, he's the icon that set the stage for all the guys that we now know today, like I mentioned earlier. And, I mean, he's probably the closest comparison to Jackie Robinson that you can really draw among other MLB players. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He wasn't the first Latino American player, but he was the pretty much Latino the Jackie superstar. Robinson of, uh, of Latin American baseball. You know, that's, that's basically that the hero of that community. And, and now there's a ton of Puerto Rican players. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I remember in the, in the world baseball classic in 2017, you know, like you see watching those games, how much pride those guys have representing their uh, respective uh, lands, you know, whether it be Puerto Rico, whether it be the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Colombia, Mexico, Cuba, wherever it is, they have so much pride representing their countries or not their countries, but, you know, wherever they are playing. But Roberto Clemente is sort of the guy who who originated that. Like, he was very, very proud to be from where he was from. And he he walked around with that sense of pride from being from Puerto Rico on an American baseball team. Yeah, there was also, there was also a thing early in his career where um, some of his uh, baseball cards would be changed to, like, Bob Clemente. And he really wanted it to be Roberto. And he said... Roberto proudly because it was so, you know, it was so unusual in Major League Baseball for there to be, you know, a, a Roberto 
um, in the league, but he that definitely takes a lot. had that takes had a that lot. pride. He didn't hide it at all. And that takes a lot more courage, uh, you know, in that timeline than it would now. Uh, you know, this was during the American Civil Rights Movement, where you had guys like Martin Luther King, you had guys like Malcolm X, and obviously Jackie Robinson was the main symbol of that for baseball, but Roberto Clemente was a close second, and for him to, you know, insist that his name be Roberto on his baseball card uh, is a symbol of, of pride during a time where there wasn't a lot of it in America among minorities. Yeah, yeah, so definitely... Definitely a guy that's a great a great example of the kind of person you should be. Someone who doesn't back away from uh, their their origins. And definitely, you know, this is this is why I, I picked him as one of my thirty. Definitely a guy uh, whose story is is worth telling and should be told uh, for the rest of time for the rest of baseball history. Um, and I think number twenty one should be retired throughout the whole league. Yeah, it should it it could absolutely uh, be done. I mean, I mean, who's, who's complaining? Who's complaining if that happens? For, 42 was, was retired kind of recently, semi-recently, like 20 was, something years ago. Yeah. It was like in the 21st. I wasn't like 99 or something like that or like 2000. 97, 99, something, something like that. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was not that it was 50 years after he played his first game. Uh, so, I mean, I could I could absolutely see twenty one getting retired throughout the league at some point, and I think it deserves to be. Yeah, and I remember I think I think um, Andrew McCutcheon one time he wanted to wear uh, twenty one honorarily um, as a pirate, uh, but I don't think it was allowed because twenty one was was retired. Yeah. But yeah, definitely something that could happen in the future for sure. So that just about closes the book on Roberto Clemente an amazing person, an amazing story, and an amazing baseball player, and someone we should all strive to be like every day. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that will lead us into the second half of the episode where uh, it's going to be going to be a little less somber, going to be more happy, going to have a great song to go with, to go with it all, um, which, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a more happy half of the episode. But, yeah, keep – Roberto Clemente in, in your thoughts. We will be talking about the 1993 Blue Jays in the snap of a finger. And we're back uh, for the 1993 Blue Jays. We're going to get right into it. Uh, Daniel, go over the context of this, these uh, want, not want to be, but hopeful back-to-back champions at the, t- at the time. That's right. So, of course, as Chris just mentioned, back-to-back, the Blue Jays won the 1992 World Series. They beat the Braves in that series. A really good team, obviously. But they had some uh, – they had to go through some obstacles. Uh, they lost Dave Winfield, who finished fifth in the MVP voting the previous season. Uh, he signed with Minnesota in free agency. That was like his age 40 season, too, that he finished fifth in the MVP voting. Uh, so that's obviously not a guy you want to lose. Also, starting pitcher Jimmy Key, who had a 3.9 B-War in 92, he went to the Yankees. So, obviously, you're losing a key bat and you're losing a key pitcher. Um, However, they were able to re-sign Joe Carter, a big power bat, uh, who was a free agent. They were able to get him back. They also signed Paul Molitor, and they signed Dave Stewart. So They they dropped one Minnesota guy, and they got another Minnesota guy. That's right. 
Except he wasn't a well. I mean, Minnesota natives. Yes. Not a not team related, but um, this team did not get off to the best of starts. In fact, on May fifteenth, they were eighteen and eighteen. Chris, they were exactly five hundred. They had the seventh best record in the AL, and they were fourth in the AL East, four and a half games back. Not exactly the start you want to see when you're trying to defend a title. Little World Series hangover. One could say that. But uh, they were able to pick it up in the rest of the first half. There was a game where they played the Mets at Shea Stadium, and they saw an old friend of theirs, Tony Fernandez, who just didn't look right. He wasn't hitting well, and he didn't look happy. So they decided, you know what? I, don't think, I think it's the Mets. Let's bring him back. They traded for him on June 11th, and he proceeded to hit 328, 398, 529, 928 for the remainder of the first half. So a pretty good move for them. You know, they get a good second baseman. Their shortstop, Dave Sco- uh, Dick Schofield, uh, actually got hurt, so that was an easy replacement for him. The team went into the All-Star break 49-40. and 40. They had the best record in the AL, despite only having despite having a five-game losing streak going into the break. They still had the best record in the AL at the break. And the Blue Jays were able to send six players to Baltimore for the All-Star game, and they were Paul Molitor, John Olerud, De- Devon White, Dwayne Ward, their closer, uh, Roberto Alomar, and Pat Henkin. And Henkin, as I mentioned earlier, he was uh, in his age 24 season, his first full season in the majors, and he went into the, and he went into the All-Star break 13-6 and six with a 3-5-4 ERA in the first half. I'd say that's an easy uh, All-Star nod. And also John Olerud, who is a really interesting player, and you could probably make a Hall of Fame case for him, was doing particularly well at this time. Uh, a 3.95, 3.92, 6.71, 11.68, 11.69, 11.70, 11.71, 11.69, 11.70, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 11.69, 
uh, ended up winning the batting title that season. Right behind him in the AL for batting average was Paul Molitor. And right behind, him, right behind him was Roberto Alomar. That's three Blue Jays in the top three in the American League for batting average. They're the only team in MLB history since 1871. That's as far as Fangraphs goes back. Uh, to have three teammates lead their respective league in average. That has never happened again. And it hasn't happened, it didn't happen beforehand, which is insane. Um, and we will talk about this, this offense quite a bit, Chris. Uh, the Blue Jays scored double-digit runs in 18 of their games. And obviously they were 18-0 in said games. Uh, and they also, however, they had 15 games where they gave up double-digit runs. So the pitching did happen to be shaky. Um, they had Jack Morris, who was on a bit of a de decline. He ended up going 7-12 with a 6-1-9 ERA that season. They had, um, let's see, obviously they had Dave, Dave Stewart, who did, all, who did all right. Henkin, who kind of fell off after the uh, All-Star break. Their best pitcher throughout the year probably ended up being Juan Guzman. Uh, he, had some, he had some big moments in the regular season, and as well as the post, which we'll get into. But... Uh, in 93, Guzman had a 3.99 ERA, uh, which is, you know, it's fairly exceptional. He actually ended up finishing seventh uh, in the Cy Young voting. And um, also from Toronto, uh, Dwayne Ward, the closer, ended up finishing fifth. And Pat Henkin finished sixth. So that's five through, uh, five through seven in the AL Cy Young voting were all Blue Jays. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know... Obviously, it's shaky pitching, but, you know, they were able to get it done because of, uh, because of records. Uh, Pat Henkin, like I mentioned, uh, was 19-9 with a 387 ERA. He was probably their best starting pitcher that season, 19-9. I know that win-loss record is sort of a statistic that's lost in time, but obviously this was a time where that was, you know, heavily relied on, and that's pretty much what got him to sixth in that voting. Uh, Dwayne Ward, 45 saves and a 2.13 ERA. And Guzman, like I mentioned, uh, he was 14-3. and 14-3. and three. He only lost three games the whole season, Chris. And yeah. he had just about, just about a four ERA, which is crazy given this, you know, this offense. This team had such an explosive offense. You know, they had four guys in that lineup where you did not want to face them. You did not want to face Joe Carter. That's a guy with 30 home runs and 100 RBIs. You have Paul Molitor, over 3,000 hits. And by the way, he just finished second in, in batting. You have John Olerud, who had an above 1,000 OPS, also a batting title. And you have Robbie Alomar, another great bat. You know, a lot of contact hitters with some mixing in of some power, which is really nice. And then you add Ricky Henderson to all that, uh, who is a guy who, if he gets on base, he's pretty much going to score with those four guys behind him almost every single time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was one thing that I pointed out or that I found out that I didn't really know about was the team had speed. They had power, but they also had speed. Like mm -hmm. you have Devon White, uh, who had 34 stolen bases. You have Ricky Henderson, who obviously steals bases. You have Robbie Alomar. Robbie Alomar had 55 stolen bases to go along with a 900 OPS that year. And even Paul Molitor at age 36 Fun fact yeah. about Paul Molitor in 1993, he was the oldest player in MLB history to have a 2020 season. He had 22 home runs and 22 stolen bases. So, mm -hmm. yeah, they, and they were first in the AL in, in stolen bases as well. And, you know, I mentioned 
all those guys that you do not want to face that I just mentioned. Uh, you also, like you said, have Devon White, who ended up hitting 273 with a 779 OPS that season as a center fielder, also a fantastic defender. You have Ed Spr Sprague as their third baseman, hit 260. Uh, and they also had Pat Borders as their catcher. We had 254. 254 is a pretty good average as a catcher. Obviously, a 656 OPS is not exactly ideal, but that's not exactly what they're going for in that timeline. Also, he was very good at defense. He had a great arm. And Tony Fernandez ended up hitting 306 that season with an 803 OPS. So pretty much everyone in this lineup was average at the very least. Yeah, for sure. Um, so going back to some uh, little notes about this team. Um, let's see. So obviously they uh, had 18 games with double-digit runs. I mentioned that. They only got shut out once, only once the whole regular season. And it ended up being uh, Fernando Valenzuela who at that point played for the Orioles. He had one random season with the Orioles, and he shut out the Blue Jays in that season. Um, obviously, I mentioned Joe Carter, a 30 and 100 season coming off of a free agent contract. Dwayne Ward, he was tied for fourth in the majors in saves. And uh, John Olerud was second in war. He led the league in average, OBP, and OPS. Paul Molitor, 332 average. as a Was he 36 at that point? Yeah, it was 36. 36, age 36, season 402 on base, 509 slugging, 911 OPS, the oldest player to go 20 for 2020. Robbie Alomar, uh, 326 average, 408, 492, and 900 OPS. Also 55 stolen bases. I mean, 50 stolen bases with a 900 OPS. That does not happen very often. And as I mentioned, uh, the pitching, they did have a few guys, you know, that got into the Cy Young voting, but all in all, Kind of mediocre. The team's ERA was 422, and it ranked 15th in all of baseball. And their 143 whip, it ranked 23rd. Out of 28 teams, might I add, because this was uh, before a few expansion-era teams even existed. And they were second in average as a team, third in RBI, and second in stolen bases. So that's, uh, that's in the whole league. Also ninth in home runs in the whole league. So this is a team that could do a little bit of both on offense. So, yeah, the, yeah, the, the offense – was spectacular, tons of star power. I mean, their World Series roster had three Hall of Famers and a guy who's probably on the on the bubble with, with John Olrood. And then, yeah, you have – I mean, that's just an explosive offense. And then everyone else is, is probably, like, average at best. So, yeah, they, they head into – they head into, into these playoffs. And, uh, you know – now they have to face the best pitching. They yeah. end up facing the uh, they they end up getting thrown right into the fire. Uh, they're facing the 1993 AL Cy Young winner, Jack McDowell, and uh, we're gonna look at the game one uh, highlights for this uh, for this series. I forgot to share the screen. Classic. It was just me. It was just me watching it. I was just having myself a grand old time. This team is fun to watch, Chris. Yeah, you know, you just find yourself doing this. So here we are. It's game one. Looking at the highlights. Right field. Ellis Burks on the run. And can't make the catch. Two-run score. Sprague gets a triple. 2-0 Jays. Bottom of four. Gene Lamont's club comes right back. Guzman delivers. 
Ozzie Guillen reaches out, flashes a single right, two runs score. We're not at a two. Guillen stole second, sets up the next batter, Tim Raines. Lines one back through the box, sneaks through infield for a single. Guillen scores. Three to two, White Sox on top. Top of five, three, two Sox. Jays rally. Two men on for Johnny Ulrup. The talented toothpick, not the splendid splitter, drive deep to right center. Lance Johnson dives, can't make the catch. Two runs score. Jays back on top, four to three. Jack McDowell tries to stop the bleeding, but he can't. The next batter, Paul Mauser, goes the other way, drops in for a single. Olrood scores, 5-3 Toronto, bottom of seven, one man on. It's Paul. McDowell delivers. Molitor gets a hold of this one way back to left center. Gone. Two-run homer. 7-3 Blue Jays. Black. And there we are. You know, little callback to look, callbacks to both uh both of our things from last episode. You had yeah. Ozzy Guillen, uh, who is the manager of the 2005 Chicago White Sox, and Paul Molitor, who we talked about last week, is great 1993 uh, World Series or playoff run in general, which we're going to get into. But yeah, if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely uh, make sure to listen. Very good episode we had last week. And uh, so yeah, the, the Blue Jays end up winning uh, seven to three. Against the eventual Cy Young winner, Jack McDowell. Yeah, definitely got to him. Um, and was able to, uh, yeah, able to win that game by four. And the Blue Jays also end up winning game two. Uh, Dave Stewart just shut it down over six innings. Uh, Blue Jays also won playing some small ball, uh, won the game three to one uh, in, you know, not the most exciting fashion, but we're able to uh, get it done. Get it down, yeah. And, in game three, they drop game three. Uh, going back home, they drop game three. Uh, Pat H Henkin had a bit had a bit of a struggle, and you know the Blue Jays' offense didn't help them out the most either. Uh, the White Sox ended up winning that game six to one, and uh, game four was more of the same. Pitching did not do well, and the White Sox end up evening the series, uh, making it two game two games to two. And then in game five, uh, pitching gets right back on track. Juan Guzman, uh, one of the better guys on the Blue Jays staff, seven innings, three hits, one run, one walk, and six strikeouts. Masterful. Uh, third baseman Ed Sprague had two RBI in the game, and the Blue Jays ended up winning that game to give them the series lead three games to two. And then in game six, you have basically the guy you want on the mound, the guy with the most postseason experience on the team. Got Dave Stewart, uh, who shuts it down again. You have Dwayne Ward, one of the best, uh, one of the best closers in the league at the time, uh, recording a five-out save. And yeah, and uh, Devon White, not the biggest power hitter, but ends up. Uh, hitting a home run in that game. And uh, here we are. The uh, Blue Jays are about to clinch their second straight American League pennant. Here we are. 0-2 pitch. Hit in the air to right field. Carter has room. 
and the Blue Jays are going back to the World Series. You heard it. You heard it from Greg Gumbel. The Blue Jays are going back to the World Series. So in the World Series, the Blue Jays face off against the Philadelphia Phillies, another NL East opponent, uh, second year in a row for that as well. And the offense got it going in game one against a young 26-year-old Kurt Schilling. Uh, Devon White ended up going two for three with a home run and a double. Also, Olerud hit a home run. Alomar hit a double, and he also had two RBIs. And the offense poured it on in game one, and the Blue Jays took the win. In game two of the World Series, uh, not the same. The Phillies were able to even it up. Stewart uh, kind of got lit up, a five-run fifth, highlighted by a three-run home run by Jim Eisenrich of the Phillies. And it was a 6-4, a pretty tough loss for the Jays. And in game three... Um, you continue. I forgot to mention some stuff about the... American League Championship Series. Uh, the uh, the American League Championship Series MVP winner was Dave Stewart. Uh, he ended up going 13 and a third, uh, allowing eight hits, three runs, uh, eight walks, uh, eight strikeouts, had a 2.03 ERA. Devon White ended up hitting 4.44 with an 11.31 OPS. Paul Molitor, Paulie playoffs, as you well should know, especially by this episode, uh, Paul Molitor, 391 average, 481 on base, 696 slugging for an 1177 OPS. Of course, that would not be the, the uh, best series for him. And then uh, John Olrood had a 348 average with an 856 OPS, a 464 on base percentage to go with that. And then Juan Guzman was very good, had a 208 ERA, in 13 innings pitched Stewart and Guzman kind of just drove the way for, uh, for the Blue Jays. I think they were, they were the only two to win games uh, for the Blue yeah. Jays, right? That's right. In that series. So going back to the series, of course, uh, where we're at, we're tied up one, one, the Blue Jays offense destroyed Kurt Schilling in game one, but uh, Dave Stewart got lit up in game two. And it's a one, one going into veteran stadium and the Blue Jays' offense turned it right back on in Game 3. They scored 10 runs in Game 3. Paul Molitor had three hits, one of them being a home run, also hit a triple. The Blue Jays, as a team, hit three triples. There was one by Devon White, and there was one by Alomar, as well as the one by Molitor. And Game 4, so the, the Blue Jays are up 2-1. to one. Game 4, a forgotten classic, and an incredible Blue Jays comeback uh, in Veterans Stadium. Chris is going to pull up the highlights in just a moment. We're going to watch... Uh, a game that not many people realize was as exciting as it was. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely forgotten. I didn't know about it until uh, just last week when when we talked about Paul Molitor's career. And here, here he is. Here's Paul Molitor right here. Pick it up in the first. Paul Molitor, bases loaded versus Tommy Green. That's ball four, one nothing Jays. Just the beginning of the rest of your life. Next batter, Tony Fernandez. Lines a two-run single to right. Devon White, Joe Carter score. 3-0 Jays for Gosey's team down early. Bottom one, fills down 3-1, bases full. Milt Thompson hits the drive to center. Devo hits the wall and can't get it. Three-run triple scores Dalton, Hollins, and Eisenreich. 
Phil's now up 4-3. Thompson, five rubies on the night. Top of two, still 4-3. Robbie Alamo, singles. Todd Stottleman, not used to base running, tries for third. Here comes Todd. The slide head first. He's toast, and he gets a bloody chin for his trouble. Bottom of two, Lenny Dykstra. Well hit to right. Yes, yes, yeah, you betcha. That's fair. Two on homer, 6-3 fills. Top of three, Jays come right back. White caps a full one rally with this single scoring Fernandez and Rob Butler. Jays now lead 7-6 to the fifth, tied at seven. Al Leiter gets lit. Darren Dalton with a man aboard. Dutch, touch them all. That's gone. Phil's on top, 9-7. Still in the fifth, Lenny Dykstra. And that's another hole in the Ozo. Second homer of the game, four runs, four ribbies, 12-7 Phil's. Now we go 14-9, Phil's top of eight. Jays come back, two men on, Molitor. Shot down to third, Hollins with the Matador defense. 14-10, Phil's after the air. Then the floodgates open against the wild thing. Base is loaded. Ricky, the drive to center in front of Dykstra. Two runs will score. Jays within one, 14-13. Next batter, Devon White. Waiting the pitch. Stretch, swung on, Dykstra coming in, can't get it, two-run score. Henderson, the go-ahead run, Jays up 15-14 after a six-run eighth. Bottom of nine, fills down to the last out. Dave Hollins lifts the lazy fly to center. White makes sure he has it. That's the ball game. Dwayne Ward is pumped. Jays win it 15-14. It is the You heard that right, 15-14. Yes, the highest-scoring game in World Series history, and I can't imagine it was... It was, it's been surpassed since the, the closest anyone came, I believe, is Astros Dodgers. Uh, that was 13 12. That was 13 12. So, yeah. Um, the Blue Jays were down 14 to 9 in the eighth inning and were able to muster six runs off the Phillies bullpen and uh, get the eventual win to go up three games to two, or for three games to one, I'm sorry, three games to one. And in game five, the Phillies were actually able to salvage a game at Veterans Stadium. Kurt Schilling. Uh, did not emulate his first performance in the World Series. A complete game shutout in a 2-0 win for the Phillies. So the series shifts back to Toronto. And we're going to pick this up in the seventh inning. The Phillies score five runs in the seventh. And the Blue Jays go into the ninth, losing 6-5. to five. And in the ninth inning, of course, the Phillies are three outs away from forcing a game seven. And, you know, as Kevin Millar said, anything can happen in game seven. So, you know, if you're the Blue Jays, you don't want to force a game seven, even if it is going to be at your home ballpark. You want to wrap this thing up. And Ricky Henderson leads off the ninth with a walk. Uh, Devon White proceeds to fly out to left. And Paul Molitor singled, bringing up Joe Carter. Chris, this is a moment in history. Yeah, if you're a baseball fan, you're very, you're very, you know, familiar. familiar with that image. That's probably like, 
Th this moment in baseball history, probably like top 10. I'd say top five. Like yeah, top, top five. Not only like, that, but they were losing. Like yeah, a lot they were of people, losing. Yeah, the Blue Jays were two outs away from losing that game. And they had blown the lead. They they were uh, yep. they were up by four, and uh, they they blow the lead. They're down one. And, yeah, Joe Cart, like a, a walk-off home run to, to end the World Series, that's – yeah, that's pretty much automatically top five. Him, yeah. him and Bill Ma Mazeroski. That's a, that's a little um, uh, connection there. Well, connection, yeah. Roberto Clemente played for the other team that that happened to. So in the World Series, uh, despite Joe Carter having the biggest home run in easily the history of the Toronto Blue Jays, but possibly one of the best ones in the history of baseball, he did not win MVP of that series. As we discussed last week, Paul Molitor, 500, 571, 1,000, just his slugging percentage, 1,000, not even his OPS. His OPS, 1571. Yeah, and uh, two homers, eight RBIs, 10 runs scored. That's right. Also, Robbie Alomar, a 480 average, 519 uh, on base, 640 slugging, and a 1159 OPS. Devon White, 292, 393, 708, 1101. And also some pitching. Uh, Pat Henkin went, had a 150 ERA in six innings pitched. And uh, Dwayne Ward, uh, 193 with two, 193 ERA with two saves and four and two thirds innings pitched. So that wraps up the season for the back-to-back -back World Series champion Toronto Blue Jays. A absolutely perfect storybook ending to what their season was. Uh, my one takeaway with this team, Chris, is that they sort of debunked that narrative that exists that pitching wins championships. You know, everyone says it nowadays. Like, you got to have good pitching no matter what the offense is. If you don't have good pitching, you're not winning a championship. The Blue Jays didn't have the best pitching, and they won a championship. And I have some uh, statistics here to prove just how good their offense was. Uh, Juan Guzman, I mentioned he went uh, 13, what was it, 14 and 3 earlier. He averaged 6.29 runs of run support per every start that he made. So, like, the Blue Jays were scoring six runs on average when he started. Yeah, he had a 3.99 ERA. There were probably other guys in the league that had a 3.99 ERA. And a, like around 500. And maybe even less. Yeah. Uh, Pat Henkin, uh, 5.90. 5.9 uh, runs on average were scored when he pitched. Todd Stottlemyre, 4.91. Dave Stewart, 5.14. And Jack Morris, who went 7-12 with a 6-19 ERA and 152 innings pitched, 4.28 runs scored per every start uh, that he made. Having seven wins with a 6.19 ERA and even being allowed to stay in the rotation is very impressive. Obviously, Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer, uh, but he was in his twilight years at that point. And it's, it's admirable how great that offense was. Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm surprised that they weren't, you know, like first in first in every category. I mean, maybe it was yeah. a more offensive year, but yeah, like, just thinking about it, Olrude, Alomar, and Molitor were just absolutely insane that year. Yeah, I mean, you could have made a legitimate case for any three of them to win MVP, and none of them did. Frank Thomas won it that year. Yeah, what speaks to this team is. Paul Molitor was second in MVP, but he was fourth on the team in wins above replacement that year. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but it kind of made sense that he was second in MVP. It does. And, um, I mean, 
yeah, this team just had such a crazy offense that you didn't – like, there was not one single person where it's like, well, this is a guaranteed out. Like, the closest thing would be Pat Borders, who even still had a 250 average as a catcher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a 786 team OPS, you know, you don't don't really see a lot of that. Or maybe last year you did, but, but not, you didn't see a lot of that team. before. You know, this, this also – you know, it was a team that kind of previewed that offensive peak of like the late nineties. And it, yeah. you know, I don't think yeah. anyone was really on the juice at the time. Yeah. This team set the tone for what was about to be that decade of baseball. Yeah. Cause the, the strike happens and then, you know, it's basically a kind of a new league in 95. You got the home run, uh, home run chase of 98. You got bonds and from Oh one to Oh four. Kind of, yeah, kind of set the tone for those probably teams were kind of crafted from that 93 team because, you know, teams probably realized, oh, we don't really, we don't need the, the greatest pitching. I feel like those Yankees teams, like they didn't, they, they had some good pitchers, but they didn't necessarily have aces. You don't, you don't really need aces. You just kind of need a, a solid staff and a really good offense. Statistically speaking, the, the ace of the Blue Jays that year had a 3.87 ERA and was only a 24-year-old making his first – not making his first, but his first full season, Pat Henkin. Yeah, yeah definitely a, a big legacy for sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously they didn't have the greatest pitching. It wasn't necessarily bad, but it was, it was good, maybe even average, and that offense was still great enough to carry them to a World Series, which is something you're, just, you're probably never going to see again from a team – you know, you look at the 2019 Nationals, they had the best pitching in baseball. The team they beat in the World Series maybe had the second best pitching in baseball. Yeah, you, you don't really see a lot a lot of teams. Like, even the 2018 Red Sox were known for the offense, for their offense, but they still had, you know, Chris Sale, who was one of the best pitchers in the American League that year. You know, mm-hmm. would have would have won as Cy Young if not for injuries, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, 2017 Astros had – Verlander and Keuchel, I mean, the 16, you know, you could go through the whole Rolodex. I mean, maybe yeah. the 2015 Royals, but even they didn't really have any stars. Exactly. Uh, I mean, this team featured a few Hall of Famers. Obviously, Jack Morris, he ended up being a Hall of Famer. Um, Paul Molitor ended up being a Hall of Famer. Um, let's see, am I missing a few? Rob, Roberto Alomar. Roberto Alomar, Ricky Henderson ended up being a Hall of Famer. John Olerud, I would love to make a case for. Uh, maybe we'll say that for a different show. But uh, I believe that's it for uh, Hall of Famers that this team featured. Uh, Dave, did Dave Stewart – I feel like Dave Stewart came I don't believe close. he did. I don't believe he did, though. Yeah, he was coming off the prime of his career. But, mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, he locked it down for the playoffs for sure. Oh, he did. He was, I mean, ALCS MVP. Yeah, and like we previewed uh, before, this is this episode is definitely gonna. It's not gonna end this way because you know we still have to we still have to do our picks. But this is how we close the door on the '93 Jays. This is how we close the door on the '19 '93 Blue Jays. Um, they were sponsored by Coca Cola for reasons I don't really know, but you're gonna forget any reasons or any desire for reasons once this gets in your head because it is a jam this song will not leave your head
absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. And I think uh, from that uh, World Series DVD, I think they, I think they still had, um, they had like those types of songs throughout the season. So they had different songs for each one and that ultimately ended up being yeah, their World Series champion the song. They had uh, one that like featured, they had, they had ones that like mentioned the players, like Devon White was mentioned. Yeah. Um, I know that. I, I forget who else, but there were probably other players mentioned too. But yeah, they were, uh, that's a, that's a jam. And I, I hope whoever's listening gets that out of their head eventually, but not the worst song to have in your head for sure. Not at all. That closes the book on the 1993 Blue Jays. Admirable team with a fantastic offense. Yeah. A team to remember, definitely star studded for sure. You know, you know, not, you know, some some guys weren't in their prime at the time, like Dave Stewart, but definitely star-studded and uh, a team that other MLB organizations should take note of. A team where you you lose some guys after you win a World Series championship, but you still try to go out and, and improve. Which yeah. uh, some some teams kind of get complacent after winning a World Series, maybe because they've just spent a lot of money, but. Uh, the, the Blue Jays were definitely not worried about that and probably the reason they were able to win that championship. But that leads us into the most exciting part of the show, at least for us, where we pick the uh, – We so for those unaware, I didn't mention it at the beginning of the show, so uh, I hope you're not too confused. But we pick uh, – since there is no MLB season going on right now uh, when they're usually – would be we have decided to make it more history based kind of a lesson for ourselves and the listeners and also modernize uh how we view teams and players now you know roberto you know with roberto clemente uh we were mentioning his wins above replacement how we how we uh led the nl and position player war and uh didn't get mvp votes and how maybe that would be different now Mm-hmm. Just kind of ways how we modernize uh, different players and different teams. But uh, we decided that we would pick 30 players and 30 teams. Uh, I picked 30 players, number them one through 30. Daniel did the same with different teams like the 1993 Blue Jays. So we pick a number. Uh, I pick a number to select the team. Whatever number is assigned to that team, that's the team we're talking about. And Daniel picks a number for the player, um, which uh, for the player and whatever players assigned to that number is the player we're talking about. So, who picked? Uh, who picked first last time? I picked first last time. So, or no, no, you picked first last time. You did. Okay. I think so. Yeah. You are going to pick a number one through thirty, which will determine uh, the next our week of our the, the next week of our lives. I'm going to go with player number 26. Number 26, a player that is still in the league. One of the greats, uh, 3,000 hits, 600 home runs, Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols. This is going to be a good one. Yeah, this is. Okay, uh, I didn't realize we were still going modern players for this. uh, I wouldn't call him a modern. Why not? I like it. I like it. All right, so Albert Pujols. Uh, 
lot of MVPs, a lot of lot of good numbers that I mean, like obviously they're modern, but a lot of good OPS is there. Um, and uh, some World Series is in there too, right? Yeah, two World Series. All right. Good so uh, I guess it's your turn, Chris. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick number eight. Number eight. Okay, this is uh, another World Series champion team. Actually, very similar era to the team we just did. This is the World Series champion, 1995 Atlanta Braves. Nice. The team that followed up this team because there was a strike. Yeah, the the team the of next the 90- World Series champion. How about Chipper Jones, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin? How about Fred McGriff? Yeah, I mean, this is a great team. And, you know, they were, they were, it was, you know, people talk about the 90s Braves. I mean, this was the only team to actually win it all. Um, and, uh, fun fact, I think they were, before the Nationals, they were the only team uh, since 1985 to, uh, to win the World Series after sweeping the LCS. That was, that's the one, uh, that's the one um, stat I, I went to before the Nationals, yeah. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, older team, but that's all right. Yeah, the Braves. Yeah, the, the Braves are definitely an exciting one, and I know there's, uh, there's documentaries about the, the 1990s Braves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they got to World Series before that, and, uh, and eventually they, they got in. They, they won it all. This is going to be a good one. This is get, definitely going to be a good one. It's also our our third team of the uh, 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, definitely an exciting episode. There are quite a few 90s teams on here, though. What? There are quite a few 90s teams on here, though. We have not done all of them. Yeah, it makes sense. We have the footage for them and, you know, better mm-hmm. defensive metrics. So, yeah, that leads us to the conclusion of our episode. Uh Thank you all for listening. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts somewhere in the future, whenever that may be, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. That YouTube channel is called STBNL with Christianta and Daniel Curran. That's right. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel underscore Curran. And there we are. That I hope you enjoyed our uh, Roberto Clemente 1993 Blue Jays episode. And we look forward to seeing you again for our uh, Albert Pujols and the 1995 Atlanta Braves. And the 1995 Braves episode. See you next time.